Before we get into anything in this episode, I did want to give you a trigger warning. This is an episode about eating disorders and disordered eating. So if that's something that is upsetting for you or triggering for you, I want you to know that up front and totally understand if this is something that you can't dive into at this time. This podcast is sponsored by UST Gear. Want to buy from a brand that cares about the environment, breaking down barriers for more people to get outdoors, and has awesome design? Look no further than our friends over at UST Gear. Oh, and they don't focus on the strange ideal of elite athleticism. In fact, one of their mottos is simply be outdoors. How cool is that? A brand that simply wants to provide you with well-designed gear so you can go be in nature, whatever that looks like for you. So whether you need some new gear for an upcoming backpacking trip, or your partner's birthday is coming up and their stinky and hole-ridden old sleeping pad needs to be retired but you know they won't do it themselves, UST has got you covered. Head on over to ustgear.com or hit them up on Instagram at ustgear. This is the Nature Untold Podcast, and I'm your host, Emily Holland. This podcast is about all kinds of sobriety, addiction, recovery, as they intersect with the outdoor community and industry. Welcome to the show. I started my first diet when I was 14. It was the cabbage soup diet. I remember being incredibly hungry, but trimming down very quickly. My biggest point of pride was when a classmate said, wow, you look really skinny, maybe too skinny. I beamed inside thinking I had accomplished this big milestone. Flash forward a few years, and I was no longer eating cabbage soup, but I was still deep in my body dysmorphia and eventually started to be bulimic. Bulimia would come in and out of my life for the next seven years. I was punitive with my exercise and constantly hateful towards my body, no matter what it was capable of. After I got sober and I continued with my newest therapist, I thought I had worked through a lot of my issues, but As the saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. Being clear of mind brought everything to a head again and again as it continued to morph into different parts of my life. In February of this year, I watched a documentary called Light by Caroline Treadway, all about eating disorders within the rock climbing community and how prevalent they are and how thinness is revered and often coveted. As I watched it, Alone, under my weighted blanket, tears streaming down my face, I couldn't help but notice the similarities between what these people had gone through to what many people on this show have gone through with addiction. Feeling isolated, being totally consumed by it, making other people super concerned. The biggest thing that hit me is the same mentality around eating disorders. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. I'm outwardly fine, but... Inside, I'm crumbling. 
So I wanted to explore the crossover and differences between the eating disorder community and the addiction, sobriety, and recovery communities. In exploring this topic, I knew I wanted to speak to the doctor who was featured in the documentary Light, Dr. Jennifer Agadiani, or Dr. G, as she is affectionately known by her patients. I'm an internal medicine doctor in Denver who specializes in eating disorders. And I take care of patients of all shapes, ages, genders, and sizes from around the United States and sometimes internationally, taking care of the medical side of what happens when you don't nourish and rest yourself properly, usually working in conjunction with other wonderful professionals like therapists and dietitians to try to help patients in their eating disorder recovery. Just like we do on other episodes of Nature Untold, I wanted to make sure we started with some key definitions to lay the groundwork. So I asked Dr. G, what are the differences between eating disorders and disordered eating? So eating disorders are a formally diagnosed criteria meeting set of of diagnoses from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, which anyone can Google, sort of what is the definition of anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, avoidant, restrictive food intake disorder. So so all of those have very formal diagnoses and and criteria. Disordered eating... is basically as far as I can tell what the rest of the country is doing, um, who doesn't have an eating disorder. It's sort of values-based, so you know it when you see it in the course of speaking with someone, in which someone is putting undue focus on body shape or size, or on the value or fearsomeness of certain foods that ultimately is undercutting the way that they would wish truly to live their lives. One of the things I learned quickly from Dr. G is that eating disorders are more prevalent than we know and that they don't discriminate. They can show up early or late, big or small, and in different flavors of disorder. And it really seems to be the same with addiction. Although you can be predisposed to addiction by genetics, addiction is a pervasive and understated issue, especially in the United States. And we learn from a really young age how to normalize it and how to push it down. I spoke to Jenna Selmer, co-founder of Basecamp, and asked her when she was first aware of her weight and the dieting culture. I'm only now realizing I'm 35 that I've had an eating disorder for over 20 years and that so many of the behaviors I grew up thinking were completely normal, counting calories, just watching what I ate, um, making food choices based not on what I felt like eating or not when I was hungry, but rather what would get me to a goal, which was fairly arbitrary, are disordered eating behaviors. Um, growing up eating, you know, lean cuisines and crystal light and all of these diet foods is not a healthy behavior. And yet it was just so normal. All of my friends did it. We watched all of our moms do it. Um, and so I feel like I grew up in this environment that really led to, especially women associating 
their weight with their worth. And, um, I, I took it a step further as I do as a perfectionist, I really have been entrenched in very, you know, clinically diagnosable eating disorder behaviors, which, um, I've been to treatment for in the past felt like I had recovered. Um, and what recovery looked like for me was in fact, just a different eating disorder (laughs) and then really fell back into some quite clinical behavior in 2020, which a, a lot of folks did just due to the external stress of that year. But yeah, so for 20 years, my eating disorder has just been taking different forms. And, you know, we were all familiar, I think, with anorexia and bulimia and even binge eating disorder, many people have heard of, but orthorexia, not everyone has heard of. And that's just feeling the need to count every calorie that you put in your mouth or being very stringent about what you eat. Some people call that dieting. Um, It's not normal to have a tally of what you're eating. And when I was powerlifting, even I was extremely stringent and I was like, I'm, I'm healed. I'm completely normal. Now I'm getting enough protein, enough carbs, things like that. However, I was not living life and I was actually not eating what my body even needed (laughs) to be a good powerlifter. So it's, it's been an, an interesting journey to figure out what loving my body really means. I resonated so much with what Jenna was saying. I felt it all so deeply for my own experience. And for Jenna, it seemed to be getting in the way of the sport that she loved, not giving her body enough fuel for how much she was powerlifting. And for many of the outdoor sports that we love, they inherently ask us to be lean, repeating this damaging narrative of light is right, seeing only lean, trim athletes in branding. For Caroline Wicks, a librarian and expert climber, her eating disorder started before she started climbing, but climbing and more specifically climbing culture didn't aid in her recovery. I grew up just like a lot of other young women in the United States, concerned about my weight from a young age. I think I had my first started my first diet when I was like in third grade or something. And it was just part of what I thought made me a valuable person. So it was really connected with my self-worth. And I now know that not to be true, but growing up, it was just really connected to what I thought was being a, a good, a good girl, a good person, a good XYZ, just that was part of it was that I also needed to be thin. I had an eating disorder that became really uh, out of control, probably around 15, and then started to change and become different when I was in college, but was still very insidious. And I started climbing after leaving my first residential treatment center. Um, at age 19, when I was like thinking about this interview, I was like, I don't remember anything (laughs) as far as like how old I was, um, (laughs) you know, younger than I am now, uh, (laughs) 
sure. At, yeah. At some point in time as a youth. Uh, but I think I was like 19 and um, starting my sophomore year of college. And I started climbing as like a thing to do with my time because, and I'm sure this is the same way with like recovering from addiction. There's all of a sudden, all of this time that you filled with your addiction or with your eating disorder. And you're like, holy shit, what do I do? <laughs> like if I spent nine hours a day using eating disorder behaviors or constantly thinking about food and suddenly I'm expected to do other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly. So it was for me just avoiding like thinking about other things. And then I found out like I can go to the climbing gym for four hours at a time and be there and be doing something else. So it was kind of like a place where I went and was trying to like avoid dealing with my emotions, hmm. but then I really fell in love with it. And I was like, wait, this is who I am. I guess I love doing this. And all of that was going great. I was kind of in recovery tentatively. Um, and then it turns out that there's this fun thing about climbing, which is that people will tell you, you need to lose weight. Ugh, I my heart. <laughs> I know. And Ugh. so it, I thought it was this great thing that I was going to do instead of having an eating disorder. And then it turned out that at least for me, it made a lot of things a lot worse. I can't imagine that Caroline's experience is unique as a beginning climber. I've experienced it. I'm sure I've seen it happen in front of me at the gym or at the crag. But socialization is real and it's deep and it is pervasive in my mind. I still had all these same narratives in my own head. The narratives of light is right, even though I know that rationally to be untrue. I still struggled with feeling like I belonged in the outdoor sports I did because I'm not a stack of muscles with zero body fat. And so it was helpful for me to hear from Jenna as she shared what has been most helpful for her in a world that associates larger bodies with unhealthy, quote unquote. So the phrase, so what helps me a lot. And I have to say that to myself over and over. So, okay. I have bloat today. So what? So what if that man over there that I don't care about doesn't think that I'm attractive? So what if I did gain weight? What are the implications of that? I'm incredibly healthy. I'm very fit person. So mm -hmm. if I am a little bit more weighty, like carrying around weight, which by the way, our society associates fatter bodies with unhealthiness, which is completely arbitrary and just absurd because there are very many healthy fat people. There are very many unhealthy thin people. Right. So this is not an automatic correlation. However, society has sort of trained us to think fat is unhealthy. And then we're able to justify not wanting to be fat, which is a problem that I think is slowly, slowly, slowly being kind of worked on, but not it's not fast enough by any means. 
but I do have to ask myself, like, what are the actual implications? So what? And then that helps me quite a bit. And then also literally just movement, positive movement helps me when I can say to myself, all right, how long can I plank? How long or how much can I weigh or um, lift? How far can I run? When I'm looking at what my body can actually do, how I'm performing, how it makes me feel and using those things to create a value system for myself, I have to do that pretty often and um, take it away from what I look like, even to the point that my husband said, like, we should not have mirrors in our house, because when you do not look at yourself, you are a different person, which is actually why I love the outdoors, because when you're out hiking, camping, like, gosh, you put your value in what you were doing and what you're experiencing and seeing with your own eyes and how cool you are and like how cool everything around you is. Yeah. And it does matter, right? Like, you know, when you're in a snowsuit and like, nobody can see what you look like, it's just, it's, it's all cool. It's all fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, the difference of that, I think is just incredible. Jenna is so right. When we're in the outdoors, it feels like we can be and do anything. I still had this nagging feeling inside of understanding if there is validity to this idea that thin or slim or trim equals healthy. So I wanted to know from Dr. G, is there validity or connection between being traditionally quote unquote slim and healthy? We all make a common mistake, which is to make a snap judgment about someone's health or fitness based on what their body looks like. If you see someone with a certain body, you are as a human being and and probably medical providers are the most guilty of this, which is really disastrous. We make a snap judgment. And I constantly am telling my patients, with the exception of perhaps the very extremes of the weight spectrum, you cannot tell who is healthy and who is unhealthy at a glance. And and this honors the movement that I've become a great fan of, which is the health at every size movement. It's not a great title, but it's a great movement. And I sort of broadly call it weight inclusivity within my clinic that I have patients who are incredibly fit, have gorgeous vital signs, eat beautifully because they've come through their eating disorder and I'm still their primary care doctor and they're in a larger body. And when they go to other doctors, you know, let's say that they have a knee problem, they go to another doctor instantly without even being asked how they eat, how they move, how they rest. They're told you need to lose weight. You need to eat less and move more. So, you know, this is one of the many, many examples of doctors causing harm for Mm. for the folks who are my patients. Okay, so what I've been taught is incorrect. You don't need to be thin to be actually healthy. Noted, registering. That is really helpful for me to understand. And I can't help but think about the implications of that same idea for folks who are in their addiction or in their recovery. How many times have we heard of people going to the doctor and communicating their substance use and not even seeing an ounce of concern from their primary care doctor 
Or how many times have we heard stories of folks who are trying to go to treatment centers, but because they have no prior huge life events like DWIs, they can't get it covered by insurance because the medical community doesn't believe they actually have a quote unquote problem. Whew, I'm learning so much real time talking to Dr. G. So I wondered what other misconceptions I, and probably a lot of people I know, had about eating disorders at large. Eating disorders aren't a phase. They're not a choice. Um, They're not a fad. They're not a way to get attention. Eating disorders are a severe compilation of mental illnesses that affect some briefly and modestly and others chronically and severely. And you can't actually know who's going to be the brief modest and who's going to be the chronic everything falls by the wayside kind of a person. So the best advice to give is when you start to see someone heading in that direction, intervene early. Name it in a safe space, in a private space, and and don't feel that you have to be diagnostician or, or therapist, but say, I have observed that you don't seem to be taking care of yourself with regards to food, like I've known you to do before. And I've seen you becoming increasingly rigid and to really struggle around things that I didn't see you struggle around before. I'm worried about you. Would you please go see somebody who's an expert in this? Go see a dietitian, go see a therapist. Maybe I'm wrong. And if I am, I will apologize to you and we'll, we'll laugh about it later, but will you please go see somebody? That is an intervention that can make a world of difference because part and parcel of the challenges with eating disorders is that by their nature, they make people deny the severity of their disease. It's very comparative. Well, I'm not as thin as that person. Well, my lab work is normal. Therefore, I'm fine. You know, my body weight has never been low in my life. How could I have anorexia? Mm. And so they underplay it and will seek to defend the eating disorder, often at all costs. Neither love nor faith supersedes the power of the eating disorder, as I tell my patients. So a loved one says, I'm worried about you. And instantly, why would you be worried about me? I am completely fine. Or look at yourself. Are you perfect with this? And they're shut down. And so oftentimes people tiptoe around those with disordered eating or eating disorders because they don't want to offend. They know they themselves are part of disordered eating culture too. Um, A parent may feel guilty that they contributed through their own diet culture to their beloved child's ultimate dysregulation with food and be like, oh, I don't know if I should bring this up. But patients use that silence as evidence that they are fine. I was starting to understand the overlaps, the connective tissue between eating disorders and our recovery communities. Feeling defensive, feeling shame, pointing to the person across the room and saying they have a problem. I don't. But I wanted to understand from Jenna and from Caroline if there are other connective pieces. What did they fear about letting go of the eating disorder 
activities? Why did they feel like they had eating disorders in the first place? What caused them? Jenna shares her own surprising realization through her recovery. So just how kind of messed up my mind was, just like the depth of it in general was shocking to me. Like I said earlier, how deep it went, how I would say how much society was to blame for a lot of it. Um, Even stuff like, do you remember when the media, like back kind of before the internet, when you go through the grocery aisle and there's magazines, right? Pictures of celebrities on magazines and how many of them were talking about celebrity weights and who gained weight. And I remember Jessica Simpson in particular was absolutely crucified at one point for how much weight she had gained. Mm -hmm. I saw a picture of her recently, that whole, you know, event. And she was so small and everyone was made to be like, Jessica Simpson is so fat. Oh my God. And she was so small. And so just going back and understanding like past experiences in the media that we consumed and how toxic they were, I am absolutely shocked that that was allowed. Mm. Um, these days as I'm going through, I get shocked every day when I'm like, you know, uh, when I'm choosing food, I'll be often with my husband and he'll be like, I'm going to eat this. And just because he feels like it. And that is such a foreign concept to me. And I'll be like, Oh, I really want, you know, today I really want Mac and cheese. And he's like, get it. I'm like, I can't get Mac and cheese. And he was like, why not? And then I'm in my mind. I'm like, wait, why not? Yeah. Why can't I, it blows my mind that I have these like arbitrary rules about what I can and cannot eat. Even though I listen to my body, like if I eat mac and cheese until I'm full, there's no issue. Cause I, you, I eat very well. I eat to fuel most times. That's what makes my body feel good. You know, to go forward, to do my fitness, whatever it is. Um, I can definitely choose whatever I want to eat in the moment and it will be fine. For Caroline, that was part of it, but even more, she was scared to stop numbing. And there's this fun thing that you get to do, which is that once you're no longer participating in your eating disorder, you get to like find out who you are. And at the beginning, that was really, really scary to me. I'm like, wow, what if I don't like myself? Like, Mm. I don't think I like myself. What if I like really don't, you know, if I use these behaviors, I don't have to find out who I am and I don't have to examine anything. And Mm. it made it so much easier to avoid me, but taking the time to really like dive into who I am and finding that underneath all of that, there's like a person that I enjoy and like, Like, I think I'm funny. I think (laughs) I'm smart, those sorts of things. And like really genuinely believing that or finding things about my climbing where I'm like, I'm good at that thing. Like I really am. Mm. And that makes me really happy to know. That's been really fun. And I was so worried for such a long time that when I wasn't using behaviors and numbing out myself, that I was going to figure out like all of these terrible things Mm. about who I was. And the opposite has proven to be true. I love that. I love that 
Without numbing, we get to find out who we really are and actually deeply like ourselves if we try hard enough to move through those past traumas and those past wounds. I think that's super important and uplifting to think about in the context of both eating disorders and addiction recovery. But I still wanted to know from a doctor's perspective, what is the overlap between eating disorders and substance use disorders? Oftentimes patients will symptom switch when one is getting better, the other will get worse. And unless you really lovingly surround sound individuals with expertise and support for both, probably they're just going to keep handing off to each other. So as, mm. as somebody gets sober, their eating disorder and their food rigidity gets worse. As somebody's eating disorder gets improved, their, their substance use may worsen. So that's very important. And I've seen that in many, many of my patients. They're both incredibly hard to overcome and one can get fully recovered from substance use and from an eating disorder. Full recovery is absolutely possible. And of course, while people continue to eat food, they can be, you know, we don't use the terminology as much, but they can be sober from using behaviors. They can be sober from restriction. They can be sober from purging. They can be sober from compensatory exercise. So that is still very much possible. When I'm talking to some of my patients' parents, usually earlier on in the disease course, oftentimes, not to generalize, but it's the fathers who have that feeling of just, just eat. Why can't my kid just eat? Then they'll be fine. I will often give them a, a metaphor which can help them understand what an incredible uphill battle this is. I'll say, you know, let's imagine somebody from the world of alcoholism um, to use a metaphor that, that often parents will understand or be more familiar with. Let's say that somebody has had severe alcohol use disorder and they've really put their lives in danger. They've lost a lot, but they're finally ready to get sober. And you say, okay, that's, that's great. I'm here to help. Just so you know, at every meal for the rest of your life, we're going to line up your three favorite shots at your place setting so that if you wanted, if you had a bad day, if you had a fight, if you didn't sleep well last night, all you'd have to do was reach out to use. And I'll say like, can you imagine how hard that would be? Because that is what my patients face as they're dealing with eating disorder recovery. Okay, so what can we do to better support those who are in eating disorder recovery, and especially in the outdoor sports that we play in? If we can remember that yes, certain bodies training for certain similar sports may end up looking similar because they do similar training regimens and because probably there are genetics in common with what kind of athletes select certain sports because their bodies sort of are made to do whatever that sport is. That doesn't mean that we, the mere mortals who are not elite athletes have to look like that person in order to enjoy our version of that sport, nor even that the elite athletes doing the sport are healthy in their bodies. 
because many of them, even if they don't have formal eating disorders, fall under the category of relative energy deficiency in sport or REDS, in which an athlete unwittingly, while trying to train smart, ends up under fueling relative to performance and ends up with all of the medical things that I'm treating in my patients with anorexia nervosa at any body size or shape because they're malnourished. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we make these snap judgments. And in the final analysis, what we can all be reminded is that we will perform best and, and go the distance, whatever that is in terms of how long we want to be in a sport, whether we're doing it competitively or whether we want to just enjoy being out in nature until we're, you know, I love seeing the septuagenarians on hiking trails. Like that just makes me so happy because I'm like, oh yes, that's who I want to be. <laughs> same, <laughs> yes. want to go the distance, it's coming back to the same thing. And it's accepting that people in remarkably diverse bodies can do remarkable things in those bodies. And the more we can foster that belief and teach our children, because once we've taught the children, it's just part of their vocabulary and they question things less, then we're finally starting to make change. Okay, a couple things there. Don't make snap judgments about how someone is, how they're doing with their health. The second piece is that we can all go the distance no matter what our body types are. And I think that is super powerful and beautiful to think about. And then the last thing is, of course, teach the children, save the world. So for many of us though, we play in these sports that have a super high level of consequence. If you think about backcountry skiing, if you think about some forms of rock climbing, if you think about these sports, there is a level of danger that is in them. And so coming into them as a newbie, you look around you for knowledgeable people, just like Caroline did when she first started climbing. In climbing and a lot of other outdoor sports where there are high stakes, I think a lot of us go back to that being a kid moment where you're really looking around you for mentors or role models or knowledgeable people who can help you do this thing that you don't know anything about. You know, we should be looking for knowledgeable people. Yeah. But here's the Midwestern thing again. When you live in Indiana, you're going climbing at the gym. And there's the one guy who like says he knows about climbing. Well, there aren't enough other people around for me to like look to, to say like, are we sure he's the person who knows about this, you know? Right. And one person's opinion in a small community can very quickly take over. So what's the takeaway there? It's leading with compassion and not commenting on people's bodies at all. What are the other ways the industry at large can do better to support people in eating disorders and in recovery? We hear from Jenna. Like, so compliments are super important. 
Um, and we often default to giving people compliments on their physical attributes. And I think that can be really damaging. So especially in the sports or outdoor industry, like, it's like, oh, you lost weight. That is supposed to be a compliment, but it's not necessarily. And nobody should ever comment on anyone else's body for really any reason. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot think of a good reason to do that unless they're your doctor or your coach and they're intimately familiar with your physiology. Yeah. So talking about someone's resilience or smile or infectious laughter is a much better idea. Um, even performance though, like we really, the outdoor industry for a long time has been focused on like, if you can climb a crazy mountain, right. Instead of understanding that, like some people only have access to a neighborhood path and it's little things like that. Like you are still outdoorsy and valued in this industry no matter if your sport is really intense or not. Mm. And I think that plays a role just because we have this picture in our minds of intense sports being done by intense athletes that are like incredibly fit, very low body fat, like Olympic level. And it's just not true. So we have to democratize what we're thinking of, of both outdoor sports and outdoor athletes. Um, but also here's a huge one. Like if we do not have gear that can accommodate all people of all sizes, then we are not doing our job as an industry to welcome everyone in and to make them feel safe and comfortable because you're saying to somebody like, yeah, you should be going outside. Or even if you're saying to somebody like, I think that you should be a certain size, I think that you should lose weight. And then you're not even giving them the gear to do the activities that they choose to do that. Like that is a very mixed message. So Not that I believe that anyone should be losing weight, frankly, like I want everyone to be healthy and I want them to decide what that looks like for them. But I also want them to say, I want to go kayaking and I want to be able to go to a store and rent a a life jacket in my size. We need to be able to provide that. We need to, people need to be able to get snow pants that fit. Like I'm not, I'm a small person. I have curves, but I'm a smaller person. I wear extra large snow pants yep, because same. they do not fit over my butt. And that would be like, it, it's almost traumatic when I think about yeah. having snow pants. So like, why are we making it traumatic to do sports and activities we love? Pay attention to the individual's response to your kind expression of concern. If you said to someone, hey, I'm worried that that mole on your back looks like it might be becoming cancerous. <laughs> no one defends the mole. <laughs> no one's like, it's fine. What are you talking about? This mole is great. This is a great mole. I don't even need any help for this mole because this mole is completely a-okay. In fact, it's your moles that are weird. Mm. No one says that, you know? Yes. So I think you're absolutely right that that if a, a dear friend, a loved one approaches you with concern and your own response is defensive, listen to your own response. Yes. This is not the mole situation. And if you yourself approach someone and they respond that way, Pay attention to that. It does not mean you need to become their caretaker and keep accosting them every day, but it might need to be that you set some boundaries around your relationship with that person because you choose not to train with, to hike with, 
someone you can tell is harming themselves in a similar way that if you if you knew your friend was surreptitiously abusing steroids in order to improve in a certain sport you would sort of be like you know that's not actually the version of this sport that i'm looking for i'm gonna i'm gonna be with people who have kinder, gentler, more thoughtful relationship with themselves than that. Dr. G's words made me think about the defensive nature we often see from folks who are struggling with their addiction and don't want to face it. And I think this is a really good reminder that no matter what ails you, whether it be anorexia, bulimia, addiction, depression, what have you, pay attention to your reactions, pay attention to the bristle. They'll tell you more than most indicators that you may wanna go within. You may wanna reflect on where you are and what you want your life to be. And they may help you even get external support. We are outdoorsy. We love nature, whatever that means for you. It may mean running up mountains full tilt, or it may mean having a picnic in your local park with your friends. Either way, we as the outdoor community are tapped into life in a way that others may not be. We know that the world is bigger than us. We know the restorative power of the outdoors. And it's time that we understand that that power lives in us too. And so in the final analysis where these two worlds overlap, I think, is all about permission to have the entire emotional spectrum. So many of my patients describe having a temperament that when they were younger, they were told, you're too much. You feel things too deeply. Why are you acting so upset about this minor thing? And so they develop this sense of themselves of like, oh, I I must be too much. Okay, well, how do I keep myself less? And the best way to keep yourself less is to numb. So whether you're numbing through substances or you're numbing through food restriction or binging and purging or binging, you are trying, you know, this is obviously a generalization, but so many of my patients are trying to quench that too muchness. So if we can encourage ourselves and our kids to occupy our full emotional spectrum. If you are a person who feels things big, great, feel them and surround yourself with compassionate people who will validate you and give you space to feel the feelings. Because when you're not too much emotionally, you don't have to numb it. We have a beautiful opportunity here to show up for the members of our community with compassion and empathy, with more understanding. While our societal standards teach us our first lessons, community is what shows up and shows us the path forward. It's what allows us to be authentic. It holds that space for us. If you're struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating, I'll have some resources in the show notes to support you. 
you're not struggling at this time, take this opportunity to think about how you can better show up for the people around you. We can all do better together. Big thanks to Dr. G, Jenna Selmer, and Caroline Wicks for being part of this episode. Links to their contact in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening.